Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. This sermon was recorded in studio. Our scripture reading for today comes from Genesis 50, 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil against you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. So we come today to the end of our study of Genesis with one of the most beautiful and interesting passages of Scripture in all the Bible. We also come to the end of the story of Jacob, or Act 3 of this study. So Between Genesis 37, the passage that we looked at last week, and then this week, Genesis 50, some of the most amazing things that have ever happened have happened. Joseph, who was 17 then in Genesis 37. It's probably about 55 now, so a lot of time has passed. If you remember last week, Joseph had this dream that his brothers would bow down to him. Uh, and along with other things, this, of course, made his brothers very angry. So one day in the field, his brothers betrayed him. They threw him into a pit. They sold him into slavery, where he eventually became a slave in Egypt in the house of a man named Potiphar. Now, amazingly, Joseph didn't sulk over this, and being smart, hardworking, he basically took over. He became the head of Potiphar's household, and Potiphar loved Joseph and entrusted everything to him. But you know who else loved Joseph? Potiphar's wife. And she's tried to seduce her slave, Joseph, and get her to come and be with her. But Joseph feared God, and he refused this. Of course, this angered her, and she falsely accused Joseph of raping her, which ultimately ended Joseph in prison. And when Joseph got to prison, again, he was humble, he was smart, he worked hard, and he began to take over there. He became the head of the prison. The prisoners loved him. The guards loved him. Well, in the prison, there was a couple of guys uh, that were former slaves of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's chief baker and Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. And these two men had dreams, and they told their dreams to Joseph. And Joseph interpreted them. He said that in three days, Pharaoh would restore the cupbearer to his post. And in three days, the chief baker would be hanged. Sure enough, after three days, the cupbearer was restored and the baker was hanged. Well, as the chief cupbearer was leaving the prison to go back to the palace, Joseph said, look, please remember me when you come to Pharaoh. Remember that I am here unjustly. But the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. And, and two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. He dreamed about seven plump cows and seven plump ears of grain. And then he had a dream about seven skinny cows and seven skinny ears or tiny ears of grain. Well, in the dream, the skinny cows and the skinny ears of grain ate the plump cows and the plump ears of grain. 
Pharaoh had no idea what to make of this, but the cupbearer said, hey, there, there is this guy. There's this guy that's in prison. He interpreted these dreams for me and for the baker. Maybe he could interpret your dream also. So Pharaoh called to Joseph from the prison, and amazingly, this foreign Hebrew man who was sold into a, as a slave when he was 17 years old, who had become a prisoner, is now standing before the most powerful man in the world. And the most powerful man in the world is desperate to hear from him. And so after hearing Pharaoh's dream, he says, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is there's going to be seven years of plenty. We're going to have a surplus. The bad news is we're going to have seven years of famine. So here's what you need to do. Build up storehouses. Save during the seven years of plenty so that you'll have plenty during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh listened to Joseph and he put him in charge of the whole project. In fact, Pharaoh basically makes Joseph second in charge over the whole country. So in this amazing turn of events, Joseph has gone from being a slave to a prisoner to being a ruler in Egypt. And so he sets out building these storehouses. And of course, during the seven years of plenty, they begin storing grain. They, they have these massive storages of food for people because the seven years of famine uh, were coming. And when they did come, the people of Egypt had plenty to sell and they sold this grain to the people of Egypt. But they even sold this grain to people beyond Egypt. Eventually, this famine went to the land of Canaan where Joseph and Joseph's brothers and their father was living. And so sure enough, Joseph's brothers eventually come to Egypt in the course of this story, and they seek to buy food. Now, they don't recognize Joseph. Again, they think Joseph is dead, but Joseph recognizes them. So, of course, Joseph does sell food to his brothers, and it's a long story that I wish I had time to get into, but ultimately there's a reunion. All the brothers and their families actually end up moving to Egypt. Joseph takes care of them. Joseph's father, Jacob, comes and sees his son that he thought he had lost. They all come to the land of Joseph, uh, rather the land of Goshen in Egypt. And where we pick up today, again, this is about 40 years after the brothers had betrayed Joseph. Now, Jacob, the father, had just died. And of course, when he did die, he asked that Joseph would carry his remains back to the land of Canaan, back to the land of Abraham and Isaac. So again, they all go back together. They, they bury their father in their homeland. And now... The father isn't there. There's no one to protect them. And Joseph has all the authorities. And so they bow down to him. And this is an amazing thing to think about. Here the brothers are. 40 years after this 17-year-old kid has this dream about his brothers bowing down to him, there they are, bowed down before him. Now, his brothers actually had bowed down before him before when they were trying to buy grain. But they didn't know who that was. Now they know it's Joseph. Now they know it's their little brother. And they're bowing down before him. And his dream is fulfilled. And Joseph's response to this whole scene is so helpful in order to understand the nature of God, the character of God, and in order to understand this, this idea that's very important in understanding Christianity called providence. Again, the brothers come to him. They say, we're afraid. They, they come down before him and say, we are your servants. They beg for his mercy. And he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant this evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about today that many should be kept alive. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God did good. Look, look at all the good that has happened. Look at all the people that have been cared for through this. And, and this is such a, a big idea. I really only have two points that I want to consider today. And they are, first of all, the glory of God's providence 
and second of all, the greater glory of God's providence. So let's begin with the glory of God's providence. So as Christians, we understand something about God that's very different from other worldviews. We believe that God is above creation. He is separate from creation. Yet, we, we believe that he's very involved with his creation. So, for example, we're not materialists who, of course, believe that the material world is all that there is. We're not pantheists that believe that everything is God or a part of God. We're not deists, which believes in the transcendence of God, that God is separate from his creation. But deists don't believe in the imminence of God, that he's a part of his creation. But there's something that we believe together. We're also not dualist. We don't believe that God uh, exists out of a wor- outside of a world that is outside of his control. Uh, there's some sort of battle between good and evil, and God is not in control of that. Or there's an evil world that God uh, is not in control of. Now, we believe that God is both transcendent, meaning that he exists outside of his creation, but that he is also imminent, that he's involved with his creation. God is above us, but he's also among us. He's involved in the things that he has made. He doesn't, know, he doesn't need his creation. He's not dependent on his creation, but he is very involved in his creation. And, and, and we, can call, we call this controller, this God working in and through his creation, his providence. Now, providence is one of those words that we don't really use that much anymore. It actually used to be a very common word. In fact, uh, in the 18th century, it was often used. If you've read any documents from that time, uh, famously our own Declaration of Independence, uh, the founders of our country said, in support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. But this is, a good, again, a word that we don't use very much anymore. So what does it mean? And I think J.I. Packer gives us a really helpful definition. Let me, let me read this for you. It says, Providence is normally defined in Christian theology as the unceasing activity of the Creator, whereby in, overflowing, in the overflowing bounty and goodwill, He upholds His creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. This is the place of God, that that he is directing all things toward an appointed goal for the sake of his goodwill and for the sake of his glory. And somewhere along the way, Joseph began to trust in the providence of God. Even though he was making real decisions, even though his brothers had made the real free decision to sell him into slavery, he believed that God was at work. And through all of those things, through all of these free decisions, he believed that God was carrying out his perfect will. What they meant for evil, what they intended for evil, they freely chose to do in an evil way, God meant for good. And somewhere along the way, Joseph, I believe this begins to rest in the providence of God. That even, that even these, hor- though these horrible things are happening to him, he, he trusts the Lord and trusts his plan. But how does this work? How can God be guiding and governing all events and men and women like you and me be making very real and free and conscious decisions at the same time? How can we mean something for evil and God mean it for good. 
And this idea of God's providence is so key to the whole of Christianity that it's worth time to stop and think about it today. And, and here's my hope as we think about God's providence, that it would lead us to this beautiful place of worship where we just stand in awe and wonder of the knowledge and the power of God. So the first anchor that we have to hold to in order to understand the providence of God is that God has all knowledge. God has exhaustive knowledge. God knows everything that has happened. God knows everything that's happened to you. How about that? You don't know a much, as much about you as God knows about you. There are a lot of things that have happened in your life that you never knew about. There are a lot of things that have happened in your life that you have forgotten about, but God knows. God has perfect knowledge. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every intention you've ever had. He fully knows everything that's ever happened to you, even when you weren't aware. He, God remembers every heartbeat, every blink. God can go back and say, oh yeah, that blink that you blinked on December 4th, 2008, I remember that one. He, he has exhaustive knowledge. I once heard John Piper say that God's knowledge makes the Library of Congress, which has 168 million items, by the way, God's knowledge makes the Library of Congress look like a matchbox. But more than that, God's knowledge makes all of the information on the internet, imagine that, which, which is a massive amount of information. God's knowledge makes all the information on the internet seem like just one page of one book among those 168 million books. God's knowledge is exhaustive. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that will happen. And here's the big one. God knows everything that could happen. You know how I met Paige? I told you during the marriage series, uh, the story of how we got together, but there's more to the story. I told you that I met her at a Christmas party in 2006, right here in Atlanta. But in 2005, I was in a wedding in Huntsville, Alabama. One of my best friends, Chris Brown, was marrying Amanda Dukes, who I'd also known since childhood. In fact, Amanda lived right down the road. Anyway, I was in the wedding, but I, at this time, 2005, I was up in Louisville. I was going to seminary, and that was the first semester that I was taking Greek, and I Greek with Brian Vickers. Greek's very hard, and we had class on Friday, and so I had to drive to Huntsville for the rehearsal on Friday, but I didn't want to miss Greek class, so I didn't skip class. I went to Greek class, but it put me behind for the wedding rehearsal. So I get to the rehearsal late, and the bridesmaid that I was escorting, it was a girl named Catherine, she kind of made a wisecrack about it. I thought that was really funny, really cool. We started a conversation. We ended up hanging out that whole weekend. She lived actually in Atlanta, and in the process, we, we became friends, and we, we kind of started dating for a little while. But more so in this process, the relationship didn't really go anywhere, but more so in this process, I became friends with some of her friends who were living in Atlanta. Again, that relationship didn't really move forward, but my friends living in Atlanta became friends with her friends living in Atlanta, the same friends who a year later at the Christmas of 2006 were throwing a Christmas party. So when I went to Atlanta on break from seminary in 2006 to visit some of my old college friends, they just so happened to be going to this Christmas party that was hosted by all these girls that they had met through this girl that I had met in a wedding. And that's where, of course, that same party was where I met Paige. And if I hadn't met and married Paige, 
I probably wouldn't have met David Dieter and Jason Byers and all of these others who along with Paige were some of the first people to have a vision for Christ's covenant. Not me. So again, if I haven't met them, none of us would be sitting in this room right now. There may not even be a Christ covenant. So why are we all even here today? Why are we even all at church today? Well, in some ways, it's because I didn't skip Greek class on Friday 14 years ago. What would have happened if I would have skipped Greek? I don't know. But God does. His, no his knowledge is exhaustive. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that will happen. He knows everything that could happen. He knows every possibility. The point I'm trying to make here is this. Did God ordain for me to be married to Paige? I, I believe so. Did God ordain Christ's covenant? Yes. Is it God who brought about this church? Of course it is. Of course, God is working through our church, but how is he doing it? He is doing, he is carrying out his will compatible with our free choices, including my free choice to go to my Friday Greek class in 2005. And there's something that you need to understand about that decision. And that is another anchor. So we talk about the exhaustive knowledge of God. But the other anchor is, is understanding the freedom of indifference versus the freedom of inclination. When people talk about the providence of God and the reign of God, they say, well, aren't I free? And the answer is that you, you are free, but you're only so free as you are inclined. We're not totally indifferently free. We, we all have inclinations. We, we're, only so far, we're only so free so far as we are inclined. What, what we have desires to do. We, we always, to one degree or the other, obey our desires. And because God knows all of our inclinations perfectly, our free decisions are compatible with his perfect will. So again, let's look at this scene with Joseph and all his brothers living safe from famine in the land of Goshen a land where, uh, and, and where his brothers are bowing down before him. Where did this scene begin? Well, in one way, it began when, his brothers, when Joseph had a dream about his brothers bowing down. And God knew that if he gave this young and unwise Joseph a dream about his brothers bowing down to him, that he was inclined to tell that dream to his brothers. God also knew that if his brothers heard Joseph telling them about this dream after they had already after he had already received the coat of many colors from his fathers, after he'd already told on his other brothers that they would want to kill him from jealousy. But but God also knew that if Reuben was there, the oldest, he would be inclined to please his father and to save Joseph's life. He also knew that Judah would be inclined to make money and to sell uh, Joseph into slavery. God knew that Potiphar's wife would be inclined to love Joseph and that Joseph would be inclined to reject her and so on and so forth. God throughout all of this is carrying out something through the free choices of men and women who are not indifferent, but they are free, free so as they are inclined. Which brings to the third point that we really have to hold on to, the third anchor, and that is this idea of compatibilism that the will of God and the actions of men are compatible with each other. And this is very important for a lot of the Christian life. Let me just give you a few things to think about. It's important for understanding the stories of Scripture. Some of you maybe grew up in a church that was more liberal in their understanding of Scripture. Um, some of you have gone to a church that was really more fundamentalistic in their understanding of Scripture. 
So maybe the more liberal churches would say, well, the stories of Scripture aren't really true. They're just stories that we have that teach us lessons. The fundamentalist would say, well, no, it doesn't so much matter what the stories are teaching. What matters is that we believe that they are true. But you see, the person that understands compatibilism understands that the, the stories of Scripture are really both. They, they are, they're both true stories that teach us about the world. It's what Tolkien, Tolkien spoke of the Scripture as the true myth. There's a mythological part of the Bible that is always teaching us. It's always showing us bigger truths. But it's true. It's, it's stories that really happen. And God orchestrated these real events to show us these deep truths. That's compatibilism. Compatibilism also understands it helps us understand how the Bible was composed. You know, again, you may have come from a more liberal perspective that say, well, you know, because human authors wrote the Bible, it's good and wise, but it can't really be fully true. Some of you grew up in a more fundamentalistic church, and maybe you have a view of inspiration that God kind of grabbed the hand of the biblical authors and started writing down his ideas. And again, neither are really what Christians believe. Christians believe that the Bible is God's word, but God in his perfect and exhaustive and divine providence led men to write the very words that he wanted them to write by the power of the Holy Spirit in a compatible way. I've defined compatibilism as it relates to Scripture like this. Listen to this definition. In God's perfect providence, the language, education, experience, research, personality, and writing ability— were compatible with the will of God in order that he give us the exact message and even the precise words that he desired to communicate to humanity through the Bible. So compatibilism helps us to understand biblical stories. It helps us understand the Bible's words, how it was written. It also helps us to understand the whole Christian life. You know, before we move on to the second big point, I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about how God's providence frames the Christian life. Just look at this story. Actions, first of all, a little takeaway here, actions do matter. I mean, look at Joseph. God was providentially ordering these events, but God was obviously working through Joseph's obedience. God brought about his perfect will as Joseph obeyed, as Joseph did what was right. You know, my dad always says, just do the next right thing. When things don't go your way, when you get hit in the mouth, just do the next right thing. Just do the thing that you're supposed to do. You don't have to figure out everything that the Lord is doing. You can just obey. You can just do the next right thing. You know, the scary thing to me about preaching a story like this is that people will hear this and, and miss the whole point of the story. You will hear, oh, Joseph became second in command of the whole Egyptian army. And you think, well, if I just follow Christian principles, then I will be second in command. I will be blessed. And here's the answer. Maybe. There's certainly wisdom in following the order and the beauty of God, but God never guarantees that we'll have some sort of great position or high wealth. What I can tell you is that you obey the Lord, that as you obey the Lord, as you listen to his word, you will be working out his purposes. You will be writing his bigger story. And that's where your peace can actually be found. That's where joy is found. Jesus said, what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You were made to know God. You were made to glorify God. And the sorrow that you have and the discontentment that you have and the worry that you have is the separation that you have from God, from the Lord. Yeah, I heard an interview one time with Bernie Madoff. He's 81 now, still in prison. 
Of course, he ran a massive Ponzi scheme. He deceived thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, he stole from people. But he had all this money. He was on the top of the world. But then, of course, in 2008, he was arrested. He was found out. And in the interview, you know what he said? That The overwhelming feeling he had when he was arrested. You know what it was? It was relief. It wasn't a cry of injustice. It wasn't anger that everything was being taken away. Is he... He already had had everything taken away. He, he had gained everything, but he had lost his soul. Your actions do matter. Obedience may not land you in the seat of high power, but they will land you in the center of God's will. They will land you in the center of God's rest. And that gets us to the second practical implication. And that is, if, if you really have this understanding of God's providence and compatibilism, you can rest you can really trust in the providence of God. You can trust that he is working out all things to the purpose of his goodwill. You can trust that. You don't have to live in fear. What can anyone take away from you? If God is for you, if you know God, what can anyone take away from you? You can say, along with Job, it's the Lord who gives. It's the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't have to live in envy. If someone else is being blessed, we can trust God's providence. Say, good for them. God is using them just like he's using me. You don't have to live in shame. You can actually own your own mistakes. You don't have to hide from the wrong that you've done. You can realize that God is actually using this wrong. It was wrong. It was sin, but God can use it. You know, the end uh, of the story is when the brothers come and say, Dad said, don't kill us. It's most likely a lie. <laughs> the brothers are ashamed. They're fearful. that They carried this horrible thing around with them their whole lives. And I love how Joseph responds. He said, look, guys, am I in the place of God? You, yes, you have done this evil thing, but God was working it out for good. Don't you see, it's as if Joseph's saying, don't you see that something bigger is going on here? If you really understand God's providence, you can just obey and trust the Lord. Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do if you knew that the world were ending tomorrow? And of course, you'd expect Luther to say, I would do something extreme. I, I would go do something great for the Lord. I would go do something that I could never do again. But you know what Luther said? What would you do if the world were ending tomorrow? He said, I would pay my taxes and plant a tree. In other words, I, I would do whatever I was going to do today. I, I would trust that God is sovereign and I would just do the next right thing. If you have the right view of God's providence, you remember that your actions matter, but you also remember that you can rest in God's plan. So we've talked about the glory of God's providence, but I want to close with our second point by talking about the greater glory of God's providence. And as I said last week, the story of Joseph parallels the story of Jesus. Jesus was the favored son. Jesus left his homeland. Jesus is treated unjustly. And through the suffering of Jesus, many are saved. But don't you see that even in the crucifixion of Jesus, God is using the free choices of man to carry out his will. And this is the passage that I've read and thought about many times. It's from Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are at Solomon's portico. And they say this to these high officials. They said, look, you killed the author of life, but you acted out of ignorance. You didn't even know what you were doing. But through those free choices, you were fulfilling what God had spoken through the prophets long ago. 
that Jesus would suffer and that through him the world that he had the world that had been separated from God could be reconciled back to God. You know, Joseph had every right to kill his brothers, but he didn't. He forgave them because he saw that God was doing something bigger. God was gathering for himself a people, a people that would know him and love him and that, that God could show himself to the world through. And obviously in Genesis 50, the story of God's people was just getting started, but I want you to hear this. It continues to right now. And look, as you're listening to this, I don't know where you are. I don't know what choices you've made. But in God's providence, you're, you're here. You're listening. You're hearing this good news. You're hearing that God is in control. And that as God allowed Joseph to suffer so many things so that people could be saved through that, God allowed his own son Jesus to suffer so that through his suffering, you could be forgiven. You could be brought in so that through his suffering, you could be a part of the people of God. So don't be confused. So many think, people think that the Christian life is all about performance, doing good enough to get in. But it's not. It's about a relationship with God. And God is pursuing you. He is using all of these things to bring about a good story for you so that you could know his goodwill and live for his glory. You know, we had a parent-teacher conference recently with John Kellis, and John Kellis is in kindergarten. He's great, but he's struggling a little bit. He's a boy. He's got a lot of energy, he's struggling to focus. Paige was actually telling some of her friends about this, and afterwards her friends were consoling her by saying, he'll be fine. Of course he struggles to focus. Just look at his father. I don't know what that means, but, but anyway, this is a little strange for us because, you know, our parent-teacher conferences with our oldest, Imrianne, are, are always, Imrianne is so easy, she's so great, she's so well-behaved. But when we got this report from John Kellis, you know what I did? I didn't say, oh, John Kellis isn't performing. I'm going to put him out. No, every day this week I've been helping him. I've been doing his homework along with him. I, I haven't loved him less because he hasn't been performing well. In a sense when he's struggling, because he's struggling, I love him more. Our relationship isn't based on performance. It's based on relationship. He's my son. We are bound. You know, look, some of you are listening to this. Things may be going really good for you, and that's good. Stay the course. Do the next right thing. Realize the kindness of God in your life. Realize that he's using you for his glory, but some of you are listening to this, and this year, this week, this month, God has been putting you through the ringer. You're in the fire. And I just want to say that's evidence that God loves you. And that in his providence, he is using those things in your life to bring about something beautiful. So stay the course. Trust him. Stay with him. Just look to Jesus. As the Bible said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, he endured the worst fire of all. The hell of everyone who would believe. That's what Jesus endured. But through that, God's glory has been known, and the many have been saved. The many have become righteous. God cares for you, and he's led you to this moment. And so I pray now that you're inclined to trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words that I have preached would rest fully on the hearts of these listeners. 
and that they would see your providential hand of care and that they would trust you and that through them, Lord, uh, they would experience your goodwill and through them, Lord, that your glory would be known. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.